How's it going, comrades? You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. I'm JD, and this is my co-host, Isha. Today we are speaking with William Ian Miller, a law professor from University of Michigan about Iceland libertarianism, the sagas, and blood feeds. Let's start the show. Professor Miller, thank you for joining us. Professor Miller teaches law at the University of Michigan. What made you pick this field? Uh, you know how things happen quite by accident? You just stumble into something that grabs your attention and then you just decide to follow it? Well, I started um, in modern uh, literature, actually, 19th, 20th century French literature, and I just, uh, it's probably too long a story to be interesting, but I, I, I just kind of hated it. I hated graduate school. So before I was going to quit, I decided I'd go take some funny courses. So I took uh, Old English, Anglo-Saxon, and I I got totally into it. But there was an Icelander in the class, and he said, you think this stuff is good? And he bought me the Penguin translation of Niall's Saga, and I went back to my little hovel and started reading it, and it was like Paul getting knocked off its horse. Mm -hmm. I had to, I just, I thought it was one of the greatest things. It was manifestly great. I'd never heard of it. And I signed up for Old Norse, and then that's what I ended up, how I ended up getting to do this in a law school is another whole story, which is, you know, why don't we get down to business? But um, they thought I was doing legal history, and they hired me to basically do that Icelandic stuff that I do. So a lot of people aren't familiar with, um, I guess, ancient or medieval Iceland. So when did the first people get there, and how did they get there? Okay, well, they got there by boat. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, and they first, we know when we, they, the first uh, uh, Scandinavian settlers, people got there in 874, 874 A.D. And we can date that precisely because we have an actual source, um, a late, much later source that says, uh, dates it. And then because of the volcanic ash layers and the Greenland ice cap, they can actually date when, you know, the the soil has just clear markings because of uh, volcanic explosions. So the earliest kind of uh, human stuff they found was right at the 874 level. First, Norse sources, the the Norwegian or, uh, you know, the Nordic sources, say that when we got there, there were some Irish monks they called them little popes in old norse was papar and they said they didn't like us heathen people so they got up and left but what in the hell did they leave it with or how did they get out there well they have these little skin boats that they these irish monks would float out to sea trusting in god to take care of them most of them probably starved to death at sea but some of them bumped into iceland uh, there's no archaeological evidence of them having been there, however, but uh, um, they said they got up and left. I doubt that because uh, the Norsemen were very good at dealing with Celts, uh, you know, Irish people. They enslaved them or killed them, you know, one or the other. Their society had no king, right? They had no king, and that became actually kind of an issue. They they became... Uh, known for that at at some point um you know they just didn't they were very poor if you imagine it's they're basically on a a a tundra lava heap out there and um you need to be able to generate lordship and kind of a, a wasteful class of nobles you need to have people producing surpluses 
And I, they're, they're basically just struggling along, you know, getting just the, they're counting calories like crazy just to see that they have enough to feed themselves. So there's no surpluses to skim off to support, let's say, a leisure class. Uh-huh. Eventually it happens. I mean, that's just too, a little bit too simplistic, but it's one of the reasons. And they're out there in the and they, and it's a bunch of uh people who come with a bit of an a more of an ideology of 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 rough equality rough egalitarianism mm-hmm. uh from their homeland that is not matched in, uh, very much on the continent of what you think of as of as europe um so they they basically didn't have all these ranks and statuses uh, okay. formal ranks and statuses. Eventually, they get the Norwegian king takes over in about 1260. When did they start getting um, writing? Writing comes when they convert to Christianity. So with Christianity comes the, the amazing technology of writing. And that, so uh, they, they, they figure out how to put their language into the Roman alphabet and the earliest writings we have are probably not for a hundred years after they convert. They convert in the year 1000, and that's an interesting story in itself how that happens. But I'm not going to go into it unless you press me to. Um, they, uh, uh, with Christianity comes writing, and once they start writing, they start writing stories about themselves. Um, uh, really, quite interestingly. Uh, uh, and thought just that their own kind of little, uh, their next door neighbors and each other were as interesting for generating stories as kings and queens and, you know, and, and uh, more outlandish figures. So you get an actual people's history with them. You actually get a, a people's stories about uh, people like themselves. I mean, of course, they're not going to tell stories about some little schmo unless the little schmo makes good. But they're going to tell stories about the kind of upper strata of people who are operating pretty, you know, involved in politics and and little dispute and disputes and uh, kind of uh, generating interesting stories. So, when was the first saga? Did it come before the writing, or did it come with? Well, the see, this is a big dispute. Uh, whether where do these sagas come from? Because when we see them, when we first have uh, evidence, written evidence of them, so we can read them now, they're of such an extraordinarily high literary quality that it's just hard to believe that they just came whole cloth of uh, just writing at such sophisticated uh, prose writing. They're written in prose. And the writing is witty, clever, just tight. And you just don't see this in other European vernaculars for hundreds of years, maybe with Italian accepted. And um, so uh, one theory is, of course, they're telling, they're just telling stories all the time orally, and they're, uh, that these stories have been transmitted orally. Another theory is that, no, the native genius was they just created a bunch of great authors who sat down and wrote some stories uh, made them up in the 12th century, 13th century. Um, clearly, I think there's pretty clearly an oral, a rich oral storytelling culture. Um, but it's hard to name a culture that doesn't have a storytelling culture. What's gossip, you know? Yeah. Okay. Now, maybe for the interesting part, um, what work all things? What's the all thing? Oh, when they first got there... Um, they quickly founded uh, what 
they had back in Norway and in Denmark and in Sweden, but our, the people who colonized Iceland came largely from Norway, except for a maybe a, a generation stop off in, in the Western Isles of like the Hebrides and in Ireland, where they picked up women and some of their own. They brought some of their own, but they uh, picked up women in, in, in uh, Celtic countries. Um, one of the things they brought with them from their native uh, Norwegian experience were meetings that they held at set times of the year, usually one in the spring, and they're called things, like our word thing. It's the same word as our word thing. And these things would be meet for a, a week in the in spring or four days, and they would hear lawsuits at them. They had a very rich law. And they would hear it. People would bring, and they would settle their lawsuits there. And people would meet, and they, you know, there would be a little market there. They would uh, make payments that were due and stuff like that. But they would actually plead and defend lawsuits there. And then they decided in uh, the year 937 that there were uh, they needed a, a dispute, a, a, a thing for all of Iceland instead of the bunch of little local things they had, like 12 or so local things. They decided they needed one for all of Iceland, and they located a place which is at Thingveller, Thing Plains, and they called it the All Thing, the Thing for All of Iceland. You can see that Icelandic is a Germanic language, right? So it shares with English certain uh, uh, cognate words. All is the same word in English and German and and Norse. And Thing, now here's the interesting thing about Thing. The word thing in Old English, like in the language Beowulf's written in, means to settle a dispute. Thingian means to, uh, to, to dispute, to settle a dispute. And um, uh, so if you thing something, you're arguing, you're quarreling about it. And the place where you'd settle those disputes in the Norse countries were called things. And, uh, you know, place names in England like Hastings and stuff like that are still that ting is uh, a thing. That's so isn't it interesting that our plain old bland word for thing actually a core meant a dispute or a dispute resolution system? Absolutely. Okay. So let's try something fun. Okay. Okay. I'm going to, um, John and I are going to have a conflict. Um, uh, every day I'm going in and dumping my garbage on John's lawn. Yep. So what, what would you, let, let's pretend we're in ancient Iceland. What, how would it work? Well, for starters, if you were in Iceland and just did that, uh, you wouldn't do that without thinking you already wanted to irritate uh, Don. John. So you, you must have had some <laughs> grievance against him, and that would be your response. If you were so poorly socialized that you just did this because you just wanted to dump your, because you're not following kind of the rules, uh, Don and maybe a few others might pay you a visit. So if you, uh, but my uh, uh, likelihood, it might be that the boundaries are not clear. (laughs) And you're you're in this wide open new country where there's no prior settlements. And so how do you set the bounds? And it might be that what you're trying to do is claim that that's your land. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll have to be a definition of just what's the dispute, what it means for you to dump your garbage there. Do you mean it to, are you conceding that it's Don's land? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, in fact, what you're claiming is it's my land. And oh. that'll have to be sorted out. Oh, okay. How would we sort that out? Let's well, Don that. might then, um, 
tell you, uh, I, in fact, we have a dispute rather similar to this in one of the sagas. Uh, he would um, uh, take the trash and maybe throw it back, or he would uh, send a person to pay you a visit and say, what's, what's the meaning of this? Do you intend to remove that or to compensate me for it? And if you said, uh, oh, go to hell or something like that, um, the person might say, well, I advise you not to do this. I'll either bring you, you know, make this, a, uh, bring this to a lawsuit or uh, here's a choice. For something that little, you're not likely to kill you. I'm not likely to kill you. But what I might do is uh, bring a lawsuit and uh, be heard at the thing. Oh, okay, uh, how are you going to, f well, this has always been the problem with the ideal of like not having an enforcement mechanism, but how are you going to get me to come to the court? Uh, how am I going to get you to come to the court? Okay, this is the problem. Now, for a society to work without like a police force or, you know, a state, you don't have a state. All you have are these little meetings that meet well, the all thing once a year, the spring things once a year in the spring. How are you going to get somebody to do something? Well, you have, first of all, people are raised up to be good citizens in a sense, to want to be respected and honored. And one of the things to be respected and honored is you, uh, uh, you admit you're responsible for your wrongs. So the important thing, like let's say, if you, can, if you kill somebody in the Icelandic law, if you kill somebody, it's called a killing. It's, it's, it's like called manslaughter for us. And as long as you, within three days, announce it to the first place you can safely announce it to. So you can say, I killed Thor Grimm, you can go and, and I covered up his body, and you can go find him there. Then what you're, you're prosecuted for, or they can bring a case against you for killing, not for murder. What's murder? Murder is simply if you kill somebody and don't announce it and claim responsibility. So there's a big, and what's the difference? In each case, you're sentenced to outlawry. What's outlawry? It means nobody can help you, feed you, sustain you. It's a death sentence. In fact, it's basically death sentence. But the difference is, if I announce the killing, I can bring defenses. I can raise, like, uh, I did it in self-defense. I did it because he composed a poem calling me, uh, you know what. Um, and you might be able to have a defense that would exculpate you. If you do not announce the killing, you can bring no defenses. Uh, okay, um, so let's say that somebody's relative so is Let me interrupt. This is a way of training people to own up, to own up to their wrongs. So um, you can't have any society work if most people don't play by the rules. And the, the law has always to be able to deal with the small percentage of people who don't play by the rules if you have if the percentage of people who don't play by the rules gets too big you just have anarchy and total dissolution of the culture and society so most people kind of played they wanted to be respected and to be respected you were respected not just for not for running roughshod over other people's rights but for standing up for your own um who has okay so who so you can where can is bring, any authority do you want to ask yeah, where the, is there any yes. authority yes okay well one is um there's there's a minimal kind of little organization there there's a, uh, about depending on what 
point in time, there's 36 or 39 or 48 people called, translated as chieftains. Uh, in Norse, it's uh, a singular Gothi, plural Gothar. And these people were three for each local thing would um, hallow the thing ground. Say now we, uh, they would say some you know incantation to the gods or whatever, and say now we declare the peace of the thing, and everybody that means that fines would be doubled for any wrong, and that it, it, it declared the peace. And they had people. Every free farmer had to declare themselves attached to one of these chieftains. And there's nothing like a lord vassal relation. It just meant he had to go to the thing with him. And um, and these people were often uh, the chieftains were often good at law, so they would plead the cases and defend the cases of their followers. Okay. And then let's say you get an outlawry judgment. Let's say you get your. Let's say I get you outlawed for dumping the garbage. Mm. Now there's a couple of probably I, I I would just get a, a hold be able to collect a three mark fine against you or get you something called lesser outlawry but let's put that aside say I get you outlawed that means nobody can feed you help you sustain you they can't even take you out of Iceland because that would be helping you so you're you're out there and what am I supposed to do I'm the one who got you outlawed I'm obliged to go kill you ah now. That's rough business. A lot of people get an outlawry judgment and don't want to enforce it because some of the people you got to enforce it against are tough mothers. But what getting an outlawry judgment does is allow you to suspend the rules of fair play so you can get, like an American Western, a posse together. And you can go out, let's say, 10 on 1 to hunt them down. Was there any concept of, say, blood money where you would say... Oh, yes, of course. Yes. There is, and you can uh, many a lot of times you can decide to not uh, sue for outlawry, but to accept compensation instead. So let's say you kill my brother. Now I have a right then to I can bring an outlawry action against you to and then hunt you down, or I could go kill you, uh, or kill your brother. I don't have to kill the wrongdoer, and then wait for you to sue me. Uh, for killing him and see if I have a defense. Or what I can do is third parties, interested people will say, hey, are you willing to just, in the interest of keeping the community a little stable and peaceful, are you willing to accept um, uh, so that we can settle this and accept a uh, hundred sheep for your brother? Ah. And you'll say, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll pretend that you're reluctant to put your kin in your purse, is what they say, to accept <laughs> something less than blood. And then people will put the pressure on you. A hundred sheep, that's an honorable settlement. And you take your hundred sheep. Ah, yeah. that's, that's actually a pretty um, a, a cool way to resolve. Okay, now how would they pick the... Um, let, since John and I are still having a dispute, like how would we pick the arbiter of the dispute? Okay, that, that, now let's say if you first go to law, the judges are already picked by the chieftains, and um, and the, and you the jurymen would be picked by um, you. The the litigants would call the jury people to be there. Um, but once uh, you. Uh, you go there. Let's say now. Now, you please re-ask the question. Now I got lost in uh, in in trying to set the background. First question is: 
how so the courts are already like our my chieftain because of i picked somebody as a chieftain the courts that i can go to have already been set for me and i can only go to this thing yes that's right and and last you know it, it's so funny because I'd like to keep this simpler than it is, but of course it's always more messy than you want it to be. There, what if the defendant is belongs to a different thing, local thing? And this is why they needed an all thing, because if as long as the defendant, the person you're disputing with, attends the same thing you do, then there's no venue problem. But if he attends a different thing, then you got a venue problem. And so they, it, you always would plead in the defendant's uh, uh, thing. Uh, okay. Um, I'm going to slightly, uh, 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 we may be going to stream of consciousness because um, this is so interesting. But I, Let me I, just I, actually say, fill in one little thing. That, you know, okay, so once you get a guy outlawed, you got to go kill him, but anybody else can kill him. I mean, anybody, he, he's a freebie. Anybody else can kill him, but they're not obliged to. But what they are obliged not to do is to give him any help whatsoever. Oh, that's super. And here, listen, uh, let me add another little thing. Now, I mentioned earlier that it's part of the full outlaw, outlawry means you cannot help a person at all, which means you can't even take him on a boat back to Norway or over to Europe to get them out of the country because that's helping them. So that's kind of looks like a kind of a stupid rule because let's say, what do you, do you want a bunch of desperate men running around and then getting together and forming outlaw bands? I love Robin Hood and all that stuff. So what do they do? They, they, and they have a rule, a law that says that any outlaw who kills another outlaw gets his outlaw re reduced so that he can be taken out of the country. Oh. And if he kills two outlaws, he gets his outlaw re reduced to a three-year exile out of the country. And if he kills three outlaws, he's back in. So yeah. this is a nice way to make sure outlaws who form bands don't trust each other. That is brilliant. Isn't that um, brilliant? Isn't that nice? <laughs> okay. Okay, so they're actually breaking up solidarity between yeah, the outlaws. Yeah, of course. They're, they're making sure that they're trying to destroy the conditions of solidarity of these people who got nothing to lose. But they're wow. trying to make sure they got something to lose, right? That is brilliant. Um, okay, so w w one thing. Um, could w women participate in these things, or was it male-only? The amazing thing about the Icelandic sagas is that the best literature, I think, still to this day for taking women seriously at every level. So as, as compared with, let's say, uh, feminist literature with a conscious agenda, um, the Icelandic literature doesn't have any conscious agenda with regard to women's uh, standing. They just took the women seriously. And uh, the very same adjectives that they use to describe what makes a man cool or worthy of marriage or somebody you want with you are the exact same words they use to describe a woman who you want to be, have with you. So, of course, good looks 
is one of the things, but they, that's what they apply. Uh, 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 the first thing they say about men, too, is just how, which I often think just means they're healthy, um, you know, given what the, you know, what the re, what existence was like back then. But the next thing they, they care about, the next virtue is wit, and that's their word, wit, intelligence. Mm-hmm. So women figure as some of the chief counselors. They're consulted. They're not to be messed with. It's rare to see one, however, killed. And uh, that is, uh, um, it's also rare to see them raped. Wow. Um, Um, There are a few incidences of rape in the sagas, but they're remarkably fewer than you would think. But, you know, who knows if the sources are reporting them, uh, under-reporting them. And, uh, but, but there's just wonderful examples of, of, of let's say, the, uh, the, the farmer's wife, the, the woman who's the head of the household. She's, all her men are, out, are gone to another farm, and there's a few servants around, and she's standing outside and sees a guy riding up who's armed, and looks like a bad man and is a bad man. Does she run into the house? Nope. She stands out there, and he comes up to her and addresses her and, and is looking for a job. And she says, what are you, what are you good at? And she hires him as a hitman. <gasps> she shows no fear at all. She says, will you, I, I set my term, she says. I have the power to hire you. And I want you to, if I send you to kill somebody, will you go do it? She, he says, you got other guys who can do that. He, she says, then go elsewhere. I set my terms. And, he, ju- and she, he accepts them. Now, can you imagine when a doorbell in, our, in, our, uh, in a middle-class neighborhood in the United States rings and you're scared out of your wits, it might be something as, as dangerous as a Jehovah's Witness or worse, <laughs> a magazine salesman? Yep. And we're scared out of our wits. She's not. So Atma speaks rather nicely to the security she feels that she has as a um, the head housewife of that farm, that she's not scared. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, now, while we're figuring that, like, how did marriage happen? Was there dowry to be given? Yes. To okay. Well, marriage law, marriage is, uh, marriage is, at, and, and these kind of communities is basically how you, um, ensure kind of the family security for the future and the present and the future and who you can marry, um, and what families you marry into, of course, uh, attest to your status in the community. If you can marry uh, uh, the daughter of a stand-up guy who's a good, wealthy farmer, then that means you're in that class of people. If you can get your sons uh, uh, married off to rich girls, then that's a sign of their, uh, your status. What are you looking for? You're looking for mostly, uh, on a day-to-day basis, just uh, property. So you're hoping that the person brings with them um, uh, enough wealth that they don't or their children don't become a burden on you. Two, if you're involved in big-time operating kind of local politics, you also want to bring in their support group, their men, their fighting types, uh, just to back you up. So when you go to the thing, a lot of guys are there with you. Oh, 
Um, so, I mean, marriage is, um, uh, is part of kind of alliance building. Okay. But, you know, you got, they don't allow people to get married unless they can show that they have enough wealth to feed their children and mm-hmm. not have their children or themselves become uh, paupers and thus burdens on the community. They have an elaborate poor law. So those uh, people who put out um, Iceland, medieval saga Iceland, is a libertarian paradise. Um, uh, The poor law, you are simply bound to have to sustain fourth cousins out to to fourth cousins. Wow. That means pretty near everybody. Yep, it's a small island. That is actually, so it's more like um, an anarcho-Marxist society <laughs> well it's it's less anarchical than you think given even um because there's a rich body of law i mean i know is there no an executive no but the present the laws that we have are 700 densely printed pages wow. from that period with no enforcement mechanism other than well the feud and honor and uh you know and fines and stuff like that but isn't it but they cared about their law in fact, uh, it was a sport for them. Uh, one of the things that was is clearly the most entertaining thing is like courtroom dramas. They they show up to the things to watch the legal cases, and they cheer on one side, cheer on another, you know. Uh, and they're all kind of like football fans today, reasonably knowledgeable about who's the better lawyer and who makes the better moves. So it's really kind of interesting. How would a kid growing up in a society know all these laws? Because it seems like you have to know, know like, oh, or any newcomer, like, how, how would you know? Well, what? the amount, there's wonderful little things. So, you know, you try and get, as an historian, I mean, you try and get whatever evidence you have. We don't have a ton of evidence of things. We have these sagas and we have the laws, and we don't have much archaeological stuff to go by. Um, but every once in a while in a saga, there'll be a little description of kids playing. And what, do, what kind of games do the kids play? Well, they play games that look like, you know, football, hockey. But they also play games that are clearly playing at bringing lawsuits, where the game is bringing a lawsuit against the other kid and the other kid defends. So they learn, like in child games, they learn how to do this. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? That is very amazing. And the amount of legal burdens put on the average free man, farmer, um, to know the rules, to know when he is, uh, what it means to be a witness. There's so many lawsuits going on and require so many participants because every (coughs) statement you make has to be witnessed. And the witnesses have to know enough law to be able to say if they were properly called to testify. So it's, there's a widespread kind of just basic knowledge of how the game of law is played. And then the law speaker, the one official of the society, is responsible for reciting the whole body of law every th- th- over the course of every three years. Oh, oh wow. So- and if it's 700 pages... Uh, we're speaking of an amazing memory before writing, huh? Absolutely. Um. So, uh, w- w- one more co- question. Like, so, the very first story you wrote is about uh, Gundmund and some guy's hand. Yeah. 
<laughs> with the Norwegians. Um, yeah. th that actually brings up a very interesting legal dilemma. Oh, isn't wanna, it? Isn't it? Do you want to? Uh, do you want to recap? Can okay? I tell that story real quickly, Please so that we can put, just to... show how rich this is? Yes. This is actually uh, takes place in about 1190, I believe. 1193. I, I, it's hard. Um, uh, some Norwegian, a Norwegian ship puts in, and when a Norwegian ship puts in, there's no uh, towns, there's no um, dedicated uh, landing places. So there's just farms like a Midwestern farm, like one detached farm after another. But when a ship puts in, right where a ship puts in, a market will form around where that ship is, and people will come down and trade. So the, the Norwegians will tend to bring timber and flour, which neither can be grown very well. That trees in Iceland are a little scrub birch, and they need building materials. And so you come down, they come down and trade. Well, the story starts up with one little Icelander named Skering who comes down, and it just says a Norwegian's gotten a dispute with him, and they chopped off his hand. <laughs> so Skering runs back to this big guy who's a relative of his, who's the big guy in the district, one of the big guys, and his name is Goodman. And Goodman rides down to get some men together, rides down to the ship and asks the Norwegians, what are you going to compensate him for his hand? And they said, they, they, they gave Goodman the right to name the amount. Goodman says, will you give me the right to name the amount? They said, yes, we agree to pay the amount you paid. And then Goodman says, 30 hundreds. And it won't go into, uh, but that's roughly what it would almost cost to have killed him. So to pay for his whole life. So the Norwegians say, we're not paying. You, ju you just gouged us. You, that, that, there's no way the hand of a little guy like that is worth 30 hundreds. Um, we're not going to pay it. Goodman said, fine, fine, I'll pay him. I'll hand him the 30 hundred I'm good for it and not but I'm gonna pick one of you guys or you can pick one of your guys say there's 25 or 30 of them on their crew of, that you think is roughly of his rank and hand them over to me and I'm gonna take off his hand <laughs> and they say okay we'll pay it so isn't that a nice little little thing about um, body parts functioning as money but the, the threat of the eye for an eye kind of thing makes make sure you actually get compensation paid. Yep, it, and like and you also like mentioned how it basically changed the calculus for the Norwegians is no one wanted to exchange their hand, so they're just like take the money. Well, yeah, you know, it's when when we say in our culture, oh, I feel your pain. I always want to deck somebody who says that. No, you don't feel my pain. You want to feel my pain? I'll 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 give you a pain of your own, a real one. You know, I'll <laughs> pop you one. Um, we don't feel another person's pain very well. It's almost impossible to do it. But one thing you can do is make somebody feel a pain as if it, it, it's their own, if it's going to just about be their own, like up. Well, I'm going to take your hand. Now, what's so cool is there's a 1 in 30 chance that any one of them is going to lose his hand, and he ain't going to take a 1 in 30 chance. So that's how much underpaid the 30 hundreds was for uh, Scaring's hand. Nobody's willing to take a 1 in 30 on that. Oh, 
Wow. Okay. So they pay it up. So that just shows you the discount, you know, like uh, let's say you're at a party, you know, and some guy's drunk and, and he has a wine glass and the glass shatters and he's gesticulating wildly and the glass goes into your eye and you lose your right eye. And now you sue, what, what is it you're likely to collect for your eye? Let's say you got another good one. Um, you know, you'll get some, you'll get some, maybe 50,000 bucks, 100,000 bucks. It depends, you know, something like that, but that's roughly what you'd get. Um, would you sell your eye? Would you allow him to pay you a hundred thousand, take your eye? Probably not. Upfront bargain. No, you wouldn't. Gross. Yeah. No, you wouldn't. (laughs) So in other words, our tort law or our law undercompensates you. Ah, that is actually a very interesting point that we should save for later. But, um, okay. Um, so another like st- story about scaring is he got somebody else's wife pregnant, or? Oh, you know, at the end, the poor guy's life. The poor guy. Uh, we don't run into this poor character for another like five hundred pages of text. Uh-huh. And then he appears again, and it said he was rather, it describes him, it says he was rather inept at things uh, because he didn't have a hand. He he found it hard to dress himself and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But he got somebody's woman pregnant. And uh, so, well, they they decapitated him. But that was, there you go. But the poor Schlemiel, it's the story of a little guy under the radar, basically, uh-huh. of the big guys who are operating. But the little, the, this little guy under the radar starts losing a hand, and then he finally loses his head. Okay. And, and so would the woman's husband be justified in that law to have killed him because he got his wife pregnant? Yes. He could have killed him. Oh, okay. And then he, he could have could... killed him and then be sued by, let's say, Scaring's kin. And he would allege as his defense, I caught him in flagrante delicto with my wife, and you could kill him. Um, I think, actually, now, if I'm remembering correctly, I think you could probably kill him even if you knew for a fact if it were the next day. You didn't have to catch him screwing. Interesting. Um, and, and the law lists the, the number of women, who, which women you can kill for if, they're, uh, if somebody forces <laughs> sex upon them. And it's your daughter, your wife, your mother, your sister, your foster mother, and your foster daughter. What? But forces sex or, like, engages in sex without um it, the way the law reads now now i i don't have the text in front of me i think it has to be basically forced or unwilling um uh if, so if closer in you know i don't want to i don't want to say stuff that i can't absolutely be confident about so i'd have to look at the text again i think it's forced Okay, so it was okay. So it's okay to have sex with a man's wife as long as she consents. No, it's not. It's never okay. I mean, you still uh, <laughs> you still get to collect compensation for that. Oh, okay. And I actually think you could probably, if it's your wife, you probably could probably kill and then allege that if it's a wife. But you know, the remarkable thing about the uh, Nordic cultures or the saga culture is that very unlike the Mediterranean cultures or even on the continent, uh, women's virginity is not a big deal. 
So a woman is not damaged goods if she's had sex. And any there's no obsession with virginity, none at all. So this is one of the things that makes women so much freer up there. So, I mean, it doesn't mean you can go screw with impunity, but it does mean that there's not the kind of uh, social stigma that goes with um, uh, one act or a couple acts of unchastity, you know, stuff like that. Oh, wow. Um, Now, uh, what if you had a dispute with a Norwegian, like, or like a foreigner, how would you get the foreigner, like, would, would you just bring it to your chieftain, or what would happen? Yeah, you know, boy, you're asking good questions. There are a, a hunk of about, you know, about 10 densely printed pages of how you handle lawsuits that are basically international law problems. How do you bring a defendant to bear who's not Icelandic? Or what if the crime takes place outside of Iceland, but it's an Icelander? Or what if it's, uh, um, uh, there's all kinds of rules of what happens if a foreigner dies in our country to his property, who gets to inherit it, and stuff like that. So yes, they have elaborate rules about that. And um, it's, it, so the joke is that this society that's so very primitive, it's the backwater of Europe, um, has just sophisticated uh, legal rules for governing just about everything you could think of they have bankruptcy law that is so incredibly detailed about the order of who gets their claims satisfied in what way actually can you talk about the bankruptcy law because a lot of us are in student debt (laughs) okay so now the bankruptcy laws work like this if um mostly there there when a guy is outlawed um i'll just give you this as an example when a guy is outlawed Two weeks after the outlaw judgment, after the thing breaks up, they hold a court called a court of confiscation. In, uh, in Norse, it's Feyran's Dome. That means uh, property uh, expropriation court. And they, um, they, this is held within an arrow shot of the defendant's uh, uh, domicile. And everybody is required who has a claim, who is either a debtor or a creditor to the outlaw, to show up. And everybody who has any of his property is required to come and bring it there. And then they have this. Now, what if he has sheep on loan to somebody 50 miles away? Well, then you just take evidence that there's sheep 50 miles away, and that'll be dealt with later. But then everybody, then the, the person who have secured, who have literally kind of security interest in a particular piece of property, first of all, the wife's property gets set out. Hers is separated out, goes to her. Mm. So That's she good. is, in other words, her property, when the marriage comes together, she still keeps title to her property that was part of her dowry. And so that's set aside to her or anything that was deemed her property by any uh, contractual relationship she had with her spouse. That's her property. That gets set aside first. The next thing is then the people who are, have secured credit, like who actually have a pledge, um, get their debt satisfied first. And then the general creditors split what's left pro rata deduction if the estate goes so far, and there's a payment to the chieftain holding the court, and so on and so forth. And um, but it's it's incredible about 
not only every liability and credit has to be dealt with. So what are the liabilities? Well, suppose this outlaw has three kids and two, an old aunt and an old grandma he takes care of. Well, those dependents are liabilities that have to be split up and are subtracted from the amount and sums available for the creditors. And they, wow. if there's not enough money to go around, those dependents become charges on the local district where they have to be, they'll be assigned to different farmhouses and people have to take care of them. That is an amazing social welfare system. Um, so, yeah, so the libertarians need to wake up a bit about the elaborate <laughs> kind of safety net, on, especially on issues of poor relief. They're very anxious about um, can they, when they converted to Christianity in the year 1000, they did so in an arbitrated settlement at the Althing. It was brought as a lawsuit. You know, the Christians said they were going to go out of law with the pagans. And they, they thought, oh, this is a disaster. So they gave the pagan law speaker the right, like they gave Goodman the right to name the sum. They gave the pagan law speaker the right to determine what the outcome of the dispute between the pagans and the Christians would be. And he declared, after lying under a cloak for a day, they got up and here's my judgment. We're all going to be Christian. We have to be baptized. Some uh, deals were made for people who didn't have warm springs around to wait till they got to one. And they actually even, I mean, they bargain about everything. And then they said, with three exceptions, we still get to expose our children, you know, newborns. Christianity doesn't allow you to do that. What does expose You understand what I'm saying, right? No. You get to kill your newborn. Oh, you put them oh. Out. okay. Uh, you you got it when you, a kid is born. You got to decide whether you know humans are worthless until uh, yeah, they're utterly <laughs> worthless until they can earn their keep in a shepherding community, probably at about seven or eight because they can tend sheep. But in another kind of community, in a uh, in a, um, a, a you know an urban community, a kid can't earn its keep until about ten or eleven. So do you have a number of calories available to sustain uh, uh, a useless mouth? And they make the decision at birth. Once any food's entered the kid, he's a fully integrated human, and you can't expose him. Then it would be murder or killing. So they, so they reserve the right to expose their kids. The second thing they did is reserve the right to eat horse meat. Now, Christians can eat horse meat, but it was, the church did not allow it in the Northlands because um, the, the pagan cults tended to be horse fertility cults. So they big feasts around horse uh, sacrifices and stuff like that. So um, they outlawed horsemen. They said, no, we, we have to be able to eat horses or we'll die. Same thing. They're very anxious about the number of calories, the amount, the amount of mouths divided into the number of calories because they're so, you know, they're so close to the, to the line. And the third one, is Thor, Thor Gare, the law speaker, said was, and we get, to, uh, we get to sacrifice to the old gods as long as we do so in private and it's unwitnessed. Mm -hmm. How's that for a compromise? He invented the public-private distinction. Nice. He said, we're publicly professional, we're Christian, but we can still expose our kids, we can still eat horse meat, and we can still deal with the old gods if we want to as long as we don't do publicly. As long as we don't do it publicly. That's pretty... And, that yeah. and no oh, yeah, blood that... was shed. No bloodshed. Very different from England. <laughs> yeah, very different from just about everywhere else.
Uh, it's a testimony to the richness of their legal culture because, in fact, what, they, what Thorgeir said was we cannot sunder our laws. Our laws must be one. We have to all buy into the same legal, legal system or it'll be anarchy. And he said we will lead Christianity into our law. So in effect, what they did is their law adopted Christianity, not Christianity. It was, there was no question in the sources we have of a better God replacing uh, weaker gods uh, or the superiority of the faith. Oh, the was problem was is that Christians were not compromisers as, you know, as believers in the Abrahamic religions are not. And pagans are, tend to be uh, compromisers. The last thing you want is somebody, your enemy praying to your God, right? That is true. Yeah, um, you know, like, who? You, then it's a bribing contest. Who can bribe God the most? <laughs> I mean, I'll take, I'll, take, uh, I'll take Thor, you take Odin, and we'll just see who's the best. And much better. I, I mean, I always thought paganism made much better sense in how we feel about. Well, Catholicism solved this by actually you you trust your saint who will go up against another saint. That's see who is the more powerful. Um. Oh, okay. Um. So. Well, so they. Okay. They had a thing for bankruptcies. Um. What about for business deals like um like a. Uh, Price gouging, things like okay, that. Okay, very like, good. Yeah, I mean, these are great questions, and of course, you know, I'm I'm a boring academic, so I can go on for hours about these go things. On for as long now, as you here's want. the here's the thing. Uh, imagine buying and selling, which they do, uh, in a system where we have where you have no coinage, nothing that functions purely as money. So. Um, uh, it means that every transaction, so uh, uh, let's say you go down to the Norwegian ship that puts in. What you will do is you're usually going to pay the Norwegian in cloth, woolen cloth that you weave over the summer um, and during the winter. But you're not going to go take horses and load up, um, you know, a couple hundred pounds of cloth to go down to the ship. If, because then the merchant sees what you got and sets the price by looking at what you got. So you always, that puts the buyer in a very strong bargaining position because he can say, I got to go back home and weave my payment. <laughs> in other words, you can't be kind of impulsive about the purchase. Whereas when you have that piece of plastic in your pocket, all the bargaining advantage is in the merchant's hands. Oh, so, so okay. Yeah, because you you don't have to lead, you don't have to consult with somebody. You don't have to, so so anyway. But now imagine that you come to the ship with the cloth, or with sheep, or with horses, or with falcons. All these things can work as money. Then they you have to appoint people who are called law seers or law measurers who value the sheep, uh, each sheep individually, to see if it passes as a standard payable sheep. Or a standard payable cow. So you can't sneak in six sheep. So imagine how economists talk about transaction costs. Imagine the cost just of figuring out how to set the price and then what to pay it in. 
So you can pay it in any of 20 or 30 substances that play both uh, uh, roles as use as commodities uh, like cloth, but also have a money function. So if you look at it and say, well, they're bartering, no, that's just not right. They just have about 20 or 30 different things working as coinage. Horses, cows, sheep. And in the earliest laws, if we're going back pre-Iceland, we're going back, let's say, to Mesopotamia and ancient, ancient, ancient Near East, one of the first uh, uh, forms of payment, of course, is the human is humans. So uh, we have a system where right now, like Amazon owns everything. Oh and yeah. Like the, yeah. yeah, yeah. So what can we learn from the Iceland system so that we can make it more equitable from the buyer? Like, is there anything that special like that they did that we can implement now i don't know that we learn much because of the how different the levels of the economy were but we i'll give you one little story that's relevant when uh, this uh, when a ship puts in a norwegian ship puts in um a chieftain or some local people given the authority will come down and set uh the prices because that ship when it's the only ship there, has a monopoly, right? Oh, so, oh, okay, so the Norwegian so ship So they has don't a... want any gouging of that ship playing on the advantage that that's the only ship that put into that fjord, you know, in two years. So, but they say that as soon as another ship comes in, those prices that were first set are suspended, so isn't that interesting? So as long as there's competition among the sellers, um, they'll let the market set the price. But if the if there's only one ship, they they'll set limits on what can be charged. That is amazing. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, I mean, they're more, they're so much more sophisticated than you than we give them credit for. They're they're really uh, very sharp, and um, no, it's just wonderful stuff. What about I mean, labor? one of the things when studying history is we, we, uh, we, I just scream at my students about this. I said, I don't want you to think for a second that because somebody was born into a world without an iPhone or without headsets that they were stupider. No. In fact, it means you are, on <laughs> average, stupider. <laughs> and they simply... Man, the stakes were high for them, higher for them than any every little interaction with another person, every little sale or trade than they could possibly be for any of you ever. So they had to be on their toes more, and they had they couldn't be allowed too many goof ups, or their family starves. What about and let me tell you, they were smart. And then they read the sagas and they say, "Oh my God, are they smart?" You know, run circles around us. I actually regret not taking your class when I was at U of M Law. But you were at U of M Law? Yeah, in 2010. You were? Yeah. And you didn't take me? I oh didn't my know God. what Blood Feuds was back then. <laughs> well, you were afraid you wouldn't be able to get a job with that in your transcript? Shame on you. <laughs> you I know, when, not... I, when I first started teaching there in 84... There are people nervous about what it would look like about their seriousness if they had blood feuds on their transcript. And then the word got out 
that everybody who had blood feuds on their transcript got like about double the number of interviews that everybody else did because all the interviewers wanted to find out about it. So then the course, <laughs> the course absolutely went to like, it would fill up the biggest room they could put it in. <laughs> like, not for, but, you know, it's like one of the things, the sagas are so damn good that whatever reason brought them in there, they were, they, with rare exception, uh, they, got, they just became totally just engaged by the, the amazingness of these texts. Okay. What about labor disputes? What if uh, somebody hires a Okay, man- uh, labor disputes are kind of, uh, um, they're highly regulated because here's the rule. Everybody, uh, there's, the, there's the people who own farms. And they, uh, everybody else who doesn't own a farm is by the laws required during a four-day period in May to sign a one-year employment contract or, or a housing arrangement contract with a, uh, a, a farmer. And um, those are regulated as to what uh, the payments, what payment can be, uh, what his salaries, uh, you know, the compensation will be, um, how much sick leave he gets. Believe it or not, he gets sick leave. Um, And what tasks he could be asked to do. He could only be asked to, he could not be asked to be a shepherd unless he specifically agreed to it up front. So there's a, a day class A job of being a shepherd. I think it's for little kids. But I also tell my class, I think it's because um, the, uh, the universal uh, sheep joke, which is that shepherds are not too choosy about their sexual partners. Ah, yuck. <laughs> okay. But I don't, well, but anyway, it was kind of a déclasse thing. So you could only, if you ever get around to reading that saga, Hravenkel saga, H-R-A-F-N-K-E-L, Hravenkel, they'd say now, um, you'll see that that some poor kid, poor kid, has to sign on as a shepherd, and it's way beneath what somebody of his physical and uh, coolness should be, ever have to take as a job. And is it and kind it of like an issue? Is it kind of like the draft at the NBA? Like at the end of the one year, like uh, do you get drafted? Oh, then the it's other? like free agency after the year. Yeah, um, I think most people stay on where they where they are, uh, but there's always kind of disputes that uh, to answer. Get back to your first question. There are a lot of regulations about what happens if the boss and the workers start uh, don't get along. Now imagine it means you have to have in your farmhouse maybe 10, 15, sometimes 20 people sleeping under your roof that um, you may or may not, obviously uh, aren't all going to get along real well. So the politics inside a farmhouse have to be extremely complicated. I think it meant good things for little kids. I, I think it meant that if you got an abusive father or uh, uh, that there's always people the little kid can run to, Oh, so, wow. Um, I mean, there's a big anthropological dispute about whether those big uh, multi-family units actually are better for kids or worse for kids, that the nuclear family might be one of the worst things ever for kids, because if you do have an abusive father, there's no way to stop him from beating the shit out of everybody. Whereas I have examples in this of the kid just runs to a, a real tough-ass servant uh, guy, and, and he stand, the kid stands behind him. Oh, wow. 
that, yeah, that's <laughs> all these things. There are all these things to think about that you never would have thought about, right? Exactly. Um, I, I, I guess. Um, well, JD was an um, activist in Ferguson, and you know the whole mess there. Yeah. So JD has a. Yeah, I've been for uh, quiet for a bit just because I wasn't sure when to jump in. Yeah, go ahead. How was law enforcement handled in these times? Well, I mean, it was, uh, uh, it depends at what level. They had little local groups, uh, 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 well, uh, translated as a commune, which would be 20 to 30 farms. And they were responsible for the poor relief in that little area. But they also set the rules for um, how many sheep people could put on the common pastures and stuff like that. So there's that kind of very small kind of local governance stuff. The big kind of stuff would be like setting the calendar. That would take place at the all thing. And um, there you would get, uh, that's where disputes and laws would be uh, uh, passed and settled, or disputes would be uh, settled or whatnot. But what it push comes to shove, if people aren't going to eventually bury the hatchet or arrange some accommodation, things get pretty rough and tumble, and that's where you get the blood feud. So you'll get two, let's say, fairly uh, – uh, you can't feud if you're poor. I mean, it takes two – because of the liabilities to pay compensation and stuff like that, it's only a certain league of people like free farmers of a certainly uh, prosperous class – who can get involved in, in the just expense of feuding. And, um, but once you start having big claims that, you don't, that aren't settled out peacefully, uh, either out of court or in court, uh, they start kind of ambushing each other and stuff like that. And then, of course, that ends up in a law court, and that ends up being bargained out and settled. So uh, it's just a constant kind of... Uh, endless bargaining game and it's the way they do politics you know what they're competing about is who's who's got standing and power in the area amidst people where there's no formal designations of who's of who's powerful there's no like you're the duke i'm the marquis it's just like oh he's miller he's really something or he's Smith, okay. he's almost as good as Miller, or hey. And they have a party game, a party game that they play called Man Evening, um, or Man Comparing. And what you do is, like what we do all the time, on, uh, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's like a national pastime with us, ranking games. What are the ten greatest Beatles songs? What are the ten greatest Stone songs? Name the five greatest uh Female black. Oh, I can name the ten greatest Stone songs right here, right now. But anyway, go. Okay, name number name number one. Oh, uh, rocks off. My favorite. Anyway, I I okay. Now that's a surprise. That's a surprise. I love rocks off. Okay, that's what it's got. One of my favorite intros in all rock and roll. I think mine's the get your yayas out version of sympathy for the devil. So, but anyway, there you go. Yeah, that's Um, a good one. Anyway, so but we play these ranking games, and. Um, they had a party game, which I say, who's the who's the most honorable, or who's the 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 lead guy in the district? And people would get in arguments, and they'd have their rankings, and sometimes this would lead to a person who thought he should have been ranked one um, killing somebody who ranked him two or three. 
<laughs> wow. So uh, the biggest, the <clears throat> biggest fraught circumstance in their lives were feasts, weddings, and parties where the poor host had to assign seats to the guests because the seats were ranked by, they just were two big long benches down a long fire. And the middle seat on each side were the seats of honor, and then each seat had a little less honor the further away it got from the center seat. So if you wanted to diss somebody, you sat them a little lower than they thought they would be entitled to. But, of course, there's no formal ranking. It's not like baseball standings where you know how many games out of first place you are. It's just the the kind of reputation and we got to do this we got to do this uh ranking and um Nial saga all the killing uh, uh bodies upon bodies in the saga you know 50 60 bodies all start because one woman was told to move down from the seat of honor for another woman oh now wow. i don't know but in my family there was a wedding of one of my sisters years ago, because I'm an old guy, um, in which my mother did not assign this one uncle a seat close enough to the uh, the head table that he felt he was dishonored. And that led to a breach in the family that took about 15 years to heal. Wow. <laughs> I love it. But anyway, so, the you know, the standard little story that you all grew up with, I think you grew up with it, was... King Arthur and the Round Table, right? So yeah. how did King Arthur get around this problem? He didn't have a bench that went out and you ranked people down the line. A round Table so nobody would know who anybody could look down and say, I'm in a higher position than you. Oh, bullshit. Everybody knows you look at that table and you can write away sign out who the seats of honor belong to. Where, where is Arthur sitting? Well, then on his right and left side, you better believe, are more valuable seats than any of the others, except for perhaps the one straight across from him at 6 o'clock. Hmm. And that you know that they're going to be ranked immediately. We can't keep from doing it. And they were doing it all the time. So in an informal system where you don't have all these titles and ranks and stuff like that, people are ranking all the time. And it's just like, who's a little bit about who? You know the whole thing about microaggression? It's like, who gets to look just a little? Who gets listened to when they talk? Who gets faced and or not a little bit like a, a stood and when somebody's talking to them at a 30-degree angle? All the little bitty signs we give to show somebody we don't quite think they're 100% human or 100% worth it. Oh, that's what the sagas are about. All the little kind of things where people assert a sense that they're just a little bit above the person next to them. Or the fear of falling just a little bit of below. And you tell me that isn't something we all know from middle school, high school, and man, let me tell you, man, Thank you for listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and corporate media. Our future episodes include Brandon Neely, a former guard at Guantanamo Bay who will tell us the truth regardless of whether or not we can handle it. 
Alexander Buzgalin, who talks about the state of our economy as Jurassic capitalism, and John Dinges, who bears first person witness to Pinochet's Chile. To bring you these wonderful guests and program and the cost of producing and recording, we need your help. Please become a patron. It is as cheap as $5 a month and you get exclusive access to all our patron-only content. To become a patron, go to http colon slash slash www.patreon.com slash historic underscore.